0: You're listening to Radical Philosophy at 8:55 a.m. This is Susan Wolfe from the University of North Carolina.
1: Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument, with words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy.
0: You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR 855 on your AM dial and I'm Janice Richardson.
1: I never promised you a rose garden. I never promised you perfect justice. Hannah Green. I never promised you a rose garden. 1964. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host Beth Matthews.
0: You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial. My name's Louise Richardson-Self and I'm a lecturer in philosophy and gender studies at the University of Tasmania.
1: And I'm speaking to Professor Miranda Fricker about epistemic injustice. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. Well, I'm a philosopher and I'm currently at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York. I moved here recently, a year ago, from the University of Sheffield. And before that, I had been at the University of London for many years. I've been interested in feminist philosophy and ethics and social epistemology all my career. And above all, I like the kind of border territories between those. Three areas of philosophy, so I get interested in things like rational authority and power, and prejudice and blame and forgiveness and political aspects of blame and forgiveness. And my, I guess that my my main work has been in epistemic injustice, and that book came out ten years ago in two thousand and seven originally. It's more, I've edited various volumes of collected papers and published a lot of papers and journals, but maybe the most recent collection I edited with Michael Brady called The Epistemic Life of Groups, which is social epistemology about collectives and the way collectives can have beliefs and knowledge and so on.
1: Uh, so would you be able to give us your definition of epistemic injustice?
0: Yes, yeah, so I came up with a definition when I first started working on this, which I think I still believe is a useful one which is the idea of an epistemic injustice is an injustice done to someone in their capacity as a subject of knowledge. So that's meant to be a very general umbrella kind of definition, and it fits many different sorts of phenomena, and I think in a way it's not really my definition anymore. People have taken on the phrase and used it in slightly different ways. So I think it can apply to cases of distributive injustice, which we were very used to writing about in philosophy long before I wrote the book Epistemic Injustice, where we might think that, you know, there's issues of justice and injustice in the question of how certain sorts of epistemic goods are distributed in society. So the distribution of good education, for instance, or the distribution of information and expert advice, or the distribution of access to information on the internet, for instance. That would be a distributive idea of epistemic injustice. But I was interested in trying to carve out a more discriminatory conception of epistemic injustice, whereby an individual might be wronged because of some dis- discriminatory attitude that was directed at them. And through that discriminatory attitude, they wouldn't be able to fully participate in practices that produce epistemic goods.
1: Right, so what was it that inspired you to study epistemic injustice
0: Well, that's a great question. It's hard to answer because when I was starting my doctoral studies, I just had this vague idea that I got very interested in feminist epistemology, interested in the connections between power and knowledge, prejudice, social identity, rational authority. And I knew these had been discussed forever in continental philosophy coming from Marx and more recently Foucault and many other continental philosophers, but it was completely ignored in the analytic tradition in which I was educated, and this kind of fascinated me. Why, why were these questions of power and knowledge and prejudice somehow excluded from epistemological discussions? And I think it was because analytic epistemology just assumed a completely asocial and ahistorical conception of the knowing subject. So it was asking exclusively questions about what is the definition of some subject, any subject to no p some proposition, any proposition, and so it was just asking these very dry a historical and a cultural questions of definition instead of looking at more socially informed conceptions of inquirers and knowers, which you have to have in place in order to start getting interested about issues of power and prejudice. And so somehow the questions I was most interested in, which I could see were being discussed in feminist philosophy and continental philosophy, they just weren't able to arise in analytic epistemology because of this very social lens through which human knowers were being regarded. So I just got interested in that fact and wanted to pursue doctoral studies in feminist epistemology where I could address some of these questions. And the final outcome was was a kind of upshot thinking there is such a such a thing as a distinctively epistemic kind of injustice.
1: Could you tell us about the two central forms of epistemic injustice?
0: Yes, the two basic forms that I identified, and I, I wouldn't want to say they're the only two because other people have subsequently tried to identify other related examples, but in my own my own personal view, I still think of these as the two basic kinds. One concerns our practices of telling each other things, so we'll call that testimony. If I tell you something, if I tell you the time, I'm formally speaking, I'm testifying to you, so we'll call it testimonial injustice. And when somebody tells me something, but I allow some prejudice to depress the level of credibility I give them in their word, then I'm doing them a testimonial injustice. I'm, in effect, allowing a prejudice to block them from being able to contribute to a shared pool of knowledge. So they're offering me knowledge, but I'm rebuffing it owing to prejudice. Or maybe I don't rebuff it entirely. Maybe I just give them a bit less credibility than I otherwise would have. I take their word a bit less seriously than I otherwise would have. So I'm kind of hampering their ability to contribute to the pool of epistemic goods, the pool of knowledge and ideas. That's a testimonial injustice. And one kind of example, maybe the most serious kind of example, is where the sort of prejudice that's at work is the kind of prejudice that tracks people through lots of different kinds of social arenas. So... Identity prejudices would be the key case, prejudices of race, class, gender, sexuality, religion, age, and so on. And So, for instance, if a police officer or a jury does not believe someone or take their word seriously just because of the color of their skin, then that would be an example of a prejudice that's generating a systematic testimonial injustice, because the kind of testimonial injustice that person is experiencing is driven by a prejudice which will render them susceptible to other kinds of injustice elsewhere in their social activities. But you could think of a more one-off kind of case of testimonial injustice too, which I call incidental testimonial injustice. And that would be when the prejudice that's depressing the level of credibility you receive is not the kind that tracks you through lots of different social activities, but is just localized to one particular context. So for instance, if you're a scientist, and you're offering and submitting work to a journal where the journal has a prejudice against work that offers negative results and your work is getting robust as a result then perhaps you're suffering a testimonial injustice because it's a prejudice that's causing you to have less credibility than you otherwise would have but hopefully that prejudice doesn't render you vulnerable to injustices of any other kind elsewhere in your social activities it's just a localized case. Now Incidental cases like that are not necessarily less ethically serious than systematic cases because it could be that science is everything that makes your life meaningful and if, it, if this kind of prejudice is blocking your career and your work as a scientist, that might be a personal disaster for you. But it's, uh, it's localized to one sphere and that's what makes it count as incidental. So those are two kinds of the, the main, one of the main kinds of ethnic injustice and I call it testimonial injustice. But then the second main kind of epistemic injustice is is very different and doesn't so much concern what goes on when we try to tell each other things, but occurs at a prior stage when the concepts that somebody might need to make sense of their social experience to themselves and or to be able to communicate that social experience to others in the social system don't exist and where the non-existence of those concepts is at least in part explained by the fact that they're a member of a group who does not generally get to contribute to the pool of concepts on an equal level to others. And I call that situation a situation of hermeneutical marginalization. So if I'm a member of a hermeneutically marginalized group, then I'm a member of a group who doesn't get to contribute concepts and meanings for the social pool on a level with everybody else. And that puts me at a special disadvantage when it comes to the likelihood of having experiences I can't make full sense of or I can't communicate in an intelligible way across social space to others. And when I do have that experience of needing to understand something that I can't or needing to communicate to others something that I can't, then I'm suffering a hermeneutical injustice. So just to give you one kind of example of that, an example I used in the book that I think still works and is fairly clear, if you imagine being a woman who suffers sexual harassment at a time before we had that concept to be able to label the experience and protest it to others, then you're a member of a group who wasn't able to contribute concepts and meanings to the pool on an even keel with everybody else, so you were having to be marginalized, and then that unfair increased risk of having an experience that you couldn't make sense of or make full sense of was realized in the fact of the way you were treated at the office, and then you were either unable to make full sense of it yourself or unable to protest it to others because the concept of sexual harassment was missing from the shared pool and missing for a reason, not just as non- an accident, but because you were a member of a marginalized group. So that's, that's a key example of her injustice.
1: And what are their two corresponding remedies?
0: Yes, the remedies are a really difficult question. In my book, I was taking a particular approach, a virtue epistemological approach. So I was looking at our capacity to know things and our capacity to correct for prejudices and to be better hearers through the lens of thinking about what epistemic or intellectual virtues do we need To be able to fend off prejudices or to be able to compensate for the fact that somebody might not be able to express themselves clearly to us owing to a lack of shared concepts and so i was looking at it very much from an interpersonal point of view and thinking how can we become better hearers and from that point of view i suggested that there are certain compensatory virtues we could try to develop and in the case of testimonial injustice the Sort of natural corresponding virtue would be testimonial justice and if i have the virtue of testimonial justice then that's a matter of my being reliably uh, sensitive to the possibility that prejudice is working on me see, without my realizing it and we know that prejudices often work on our judgments without our realizing it and that i make some kind of corrective efforts maybe i suspend judgment or maybe i seek corroborating evidence about how likely this person is to be telling me the truth about the question I've asked her about. And I somehow manage to either raise the level of credibility I give her to the proper unprejudiced level, or perhaps I just suspend judgment. But at any rate, I'm reliably sensitive to the possibility that I'm prejudiced. In the case of hermeneutical injustice, it's a similar idea, because if somebody is subject to a hermeneutical injustice and is trying to explain an experience she's had, imagine we're back in the 1950s and somebody's trying to explain to her boss an experience of sexual harassment that she's having in the office, he would have, let us assume the boss is a he, he would have the virtue of hermeneutical injustice only if he was reliably aware of the possibility that the reason he can't fully understand what she's trying to describe is not her fault, but rather owing to a lack of shared concepts on their part. So that virtue of hermeneutical justice is a kind of corrective virtue as well. I think they're incredibly hard to achieve, and in a way these virtues are just there as kind of to carve out the possibility. So that's how the two virtues of testimonial justice and hermeneutical justice are set up as possible ideals, even though I think they're really hard to realise. But what I want to say, and I didn't say very much about in the book, I just pointed to the possibility was that, of course, virtues on the part of individuals are only part of a solution. They could never be the whole solution anyway, because the things that lie behind both testimonial injustice and hermeneutical injustice are systemic social problems. So what causes testimonial injustice is prejudice, and prejudices are all around, and in order to stop testimonial injustice happening, you'd have to create a prejudice-free society. And in the case of hermeneutical injustice, what lies behind that is hermeneutical marginalization, which is the inequality of people in terms of their ability to contribute concepts and social meaning to the shared pool. And so in order to dismantle that, you'd need far greater social equality all round so that members of every different social group get to contribute on an even basis to the shared pool of concepts. And obviously, neither of those two systemic things can be achieved just through the exercise of individual virtue. They require all sorts of more systemic changes, like greater general equality and greater, more egalitarian attitudes on the part of uh, society in general. So I'd really like to emphasize that although I still think personal virtues, and institutional virtues, too, are a really important part of the solution and that we can do something to work towards those ideals, I would never pretend that they are the whole solution. And I think so long as you have inequalities of power in society and inequalities of education and other kinds of political inequalities, you will always have prejudices and you will always have hermeneutical marginalization. And so there's a lot It's really a question for politicians, apart from anything else, to think how we can make our society a more egalitarian one all round. And only then might we be really combating epistemic injustice
1: on all fronts. Yes, you're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Professor Miranda Fricker about epistemic injustice. What is epistemic injustice relation to healthcare and psychiatry?
0: Well, I think it's a very interesting new development. It's been very nice for me to find that some psychiatrists and philosophers of medicine and also general practitioners too have started to take an interest in an application of ideas about epistemic injustice to the patient's healthcare professional relationship and their forms of communication. So there's been quite a lot of writing recently by um, patients and philosophers of medicine about the ways in which despite the best will in the world and, and partly owing to pressures of time and pressures of professionalization, doctors don't always listen as carefully as they might to the experiences of patients when they're having a consultation. And many patients feel that they're not listened to in the right way and that certain sorts of prejudices, like prejudice is about relating to patients' ignorance of technical terminology and of what's going to be diagnostically relevant and so on, those prejudices get in the way and lead patients to feel that their word is being dismissed or that their stories and experiences are being ignored. And so that's been a really interesting new development. I think in particular in psychiatry, I've been very interested, for instance, in some work by two British psychiatrists called Abdi Sanati and Michaelis Kiratzis, who've written a number of papers about epistemic injustice in psychiatry. One of them, I think, is is particularly interesting and easy to summarize, if I could just tell you how uh, their argument works. They think that the experience of diagnosing a delusional patient Puts the psychiatrist at real risk of doing an epistemic injustice, a testimonial injustice in particular, to the patient. And it works like this. You might have a correct diagnosis of delusionality, and then what happens is the psychiatrist will tend to see all of the patient's cognitive behavior through that prejudicial lens of the delusional diagnosis. Now, the diagnosis might be quite right, but very often, they tell me, the delusional aspects of a person's cognitive behavior are highly localized. And the psychiatrist needs to bear that in mind in order to not overgeneralize to see all of their cognitive behavior through the lens of the delusionality. If a psychiatrist doesn't manage to keep it local in that way, then the risk is that she or he will undervalue and give give a depressed level of credibility to other things that the patient says thereby doing the testimonial injustice and possibly putting them in harm's way. It may may make them more likely to be manhandled by the police or to be detained under the Mental Health Act, as we call it in the UK. And this would be a kind of serious series of harms that would follow on from the original testimonial injustice. So these are two psychiatrists who've really drawn our attention to the endemic risk within their profession of... Uh, doing certain sorts of testimonial injustices to patients. And that's that's something that I find very interesting and it points to the possibility that psychiatrists might be interested in working on ideas about the corrective virtues within their profession, corrective professional virtues, if you like, of testimonial justice.
1: So do you have any future study plans within this area?
0: Yes, well, there's a project that I'm involved in with another philosopher from the University of Groningen in the Netherlands called Vader van de Bruin, And we are working on a project called Towards Professional Epistemic Justice in Finance and Medicine. And obviously, the medicine side of that project connects with the psychiatric example I just gave you. And our hope, we're just at the beginning of this project, but our hope is to connect up with professionals in psychiatry and in other areas of healthcare and also philosophers of medicine to see if we can develop these ideas of professional virtues for psychiatrists and healthcare professionals. And we're we're very optimistic that uh, we'll be able to take their lead in, in this regard.
1: Well, thank you very much for coming on to the program today.
0: It's been a pleasure. Thank you very
1: much. And I've been speaking to Professor Miranda Fricker about epistemic injustice.
0: Hi, this is Dana Goswick from the University of Melbourne. I'm here with 3CR Community Radio 855
1: and I love to listen to radical philosophy. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening and hope you've been given plenty of food for thought.